And now, here's Rick Cleffel as he speaks with John Shirley. John Shirley is all kinds of punk. In the 1970s, while playing in a punk rock band, he joined William Gibson and Bruce Sterling as the first of the cyberpunk authors. His novel City Come A-Walkin' was iconic in the genre, as were his Eclipse trilogy and the short story collection Heat Seeker. His novel Sellers led the way for the splatterpunk horror authors, and his novels In Darkness Waiting and Wet Bones are high points of the genre. He was the principal screenwriter for the movie The Crow and has written extensively for movies and TV since. His fiction is rife with mythic imagery, intelligent concepts, and down-to-earth characters who live average lives. Average lives, that is, outside of confrontations with forces both supernatural and cybernetic. His latest novel is Crawlers. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, it's good to be here. John, tell us, what was happening back in 1978 when you decided to start writing the kind of fiction that eventually became known as cyberpunk? Well, there was a kind of convergence of a lot of uh, intense cultural influences at the time. There was, uh, there was a culture of people writing science fiction and fantasy who were tired of the old, uh, familiar tropes of science fiction and fantasy. They, you know, they, were, they wanted to do something fresh. They wanted to uh, infuse it with um, uh, the imagery of, of uh, progressive uh, writing and people like William Burroughs and uh, um, the uh, beat poets and uh, the poetry of the, uh, the French uh, surrealists and um, people like that, uh, uh, Artaud, there was this whole s kind of sensibility of the demimonde that was seeping into um, people who were also in interested in science fiction because science fiction was a sort of um, alternative to mainstream uh, literature anyway and we just saw the possibility of kind of taking it from its kind of Isaac Asimov uh, you know direction uh, which is okay but we we wanted to shift it so that it had more relevance to um, people's lives and uh, the immediate future. How much communication was there between you and the other authors? Well, we corresponded, and uh, this was before email, and uh, so we actual, actually wrote print letters, if you remember those. They went in envelopes. Vaguely. Yeah, and, <clears throat> you know, there was such a thing as epistolary literature in those days, which is dying out now because of email, but uh, we um, corresponded uh, because we'd read each other's books, and we, we recognized... Uh, that we were part of the same culture and there weren't very many of us uh, I mean most science fiction fans didn't know you know who William Burroughs is if you said Burroughs they thought of Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, and these guys knew and and um, they knew Hubert Selby for example um, 
and uh, they were familiar also with with uh, uh, another kind of of uh, literature, um, uh, you know, the better rock literature uh, in the form of lyrics by the Velvet Underground, for example. Um, they were all fans of of the Velvet Underground and the and Pierre Ubu and the you know seminal. Uh, uh, kind of proto-punk people like that. Uh, so, you know, we recognized each other. I mean, we stood out uh, amongst the, you know, the backdrop of the usual science fiction fantasy people, especially at conventions, we literally stood out. We didn't, we were the ones dressed in black, uh, and we, and we had a different, we usually weren't, um, the same, uh, geometry physically, you know, it was like, uh, you know, we were the, we were the skinny ones. <laughs> <laughs> so we could actually see each other. Well, I shouldn't say that. But uh, and when I, I met uh, William Gibson, uh, he's the guy who wrote Neuromancer and came up with the word uh, cyberspace and so on. Um, on a panel uh, at a convention in Vancouver, and I, you know, this was before he'd published anything, and I um, started talking about you know uh, kinds of. Uh, fantastic fiction that were that not familiar to uh, most uh, science fiction people and he was the only one on the panel who knew what I was talking about um, so you know and, and and then we started you know names started popping up and we saw that we were both part of that culture which is closer closer to the beat culture or something in those days and then what became the punk culture uh, and you know we were like instantly uh, cronies and after the panel and, uh, you know, uh, found ourselves sort of like in the same foxhole, in a sense. From this background of beat culture and surrealist poetry, how did you choose the computer and its influence on society? Or how did that come to be the central core of the imagery that dominates cyberpunk and much of fiction today? Uh, computer? The computer. Um, well, in the network, in the internet, the idea of an electronic communication. I guess because um, it's the famous phrase, I'm not even sure where it originates. Gibson, I think, quotes it, uh, the street has its own uses for things. And you could, you could see that people, um, you know, at a street level were reaching for some way to express themselves that wasn't yet co-opted. Um, and and uh, and there was just the beginnings. There was the beginnings of the uh, PC revolution, um, you know, in the late '70s and into the '80s, and uh, stretching into the early '90s, and um, and the beginnings of the internet and um, the well. For example, a lot of these people knew each other from the well, which is like the first kind of one of the first internet chat room things, or you know. That's a uh, San media. Francisco yeah. creation. Could you talk a little bit about The Well? Well, I wasn't really that involved, but uh, Sterling and Gibson and a lot of these people were. Um, it's, you know, uh, it, it, it was like a prototypical um, kind of uh, message board communication center uh, in the early days of the Internet. And uh, um, uh, a lot of these people, like from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, were part of that scene, and uh, they all knew each other. There was a lot of overlap and cultural mutual insemination from uh, through the well, uh, and and people saw the potential of that. And they and there was a sort of sense of the the 
leveling and the democratizing uh, uh, of society that could potentially come through computers and computer technology. It empowered people and that, and, uh, you know, there was also the, um, the counterculture at that time where people were looking for empowerment for the, you know, um, uh, outside of the uh, mainstream, supposedly imperialistic culture, you know, we were all uh, reacting to the Vietnam War. So there were, there was, a, we were looking for different ways of empowering, and and uh, computer technology seemed to offer that. And uh, all of us were sort of fascinated by street culture, including things like the black market and drug dealing. And we didn't do it, but we knew about it. And we all of our friends were somehow involved or knew somebody who did. And we we sort of uh, we saw that, uh, that 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 was itself its own kind of revolution. Um, you know, it, it was because it was people becoming independent and flying under the radar uh, through um, a, you know, whatever means they could find, get their hands on and just take command of. Uh, and uh, cyberpunk had that quality of, you know, of um, powerful individualism on the street level. You see that in, in stories like Johnny Mnemonic, you know, where people ha take uh, a technology and they, and they twist it to their own weird individualistic uh, purposes. Could you talk a little bit about the interplay for you and for the field between music and fiction? Well, sort of instinctive, uh, visceral uh, thing with me. I grew up listening to rock and roll and um, folk music, and um, all of my early stories uh, usually had a little segment of uh, in the story that that was lyrics that was where I was trying to make up lyrics from some imaginary band and seamlessly weave it into the prose of the story. And sometimes I would try and reproduce the rhythms of music in the prose I was writing. Um, and it just was a instinctive with, with me. And very early on, I was also in rock bands and punk bands. I started the first punk bands in Portland, Oregon. Really, some, some of the first two or three in the Pacific Northwest. Also, one thing that you and your fiction seems to be interested in is shock value. You have the shock of the new with your cyberpunk and, to a certain extent, the shock of the old with your horror. Could you talk about fiction that shocks, that jolts people out of their complacency? Well, it's what you said. Uh, we're trying to jolt them out of it, their complacency. We recognize, you know, this kind of... Uh, vast hypnotizing influence of, of media and, and ordinary popular culture and uh, we looked around us and and saw um, the you know the suburbs sprawling out around us the, the little piece that you played was called Johnny Paranoid right and and then from the same band uh, my band Sado Nation there was one called Condominium Nightmare which I, and uh, it um, kind of expresses that feeling of that you know the, you are you're find yourself in the, um, uh, f kind of uh, installed without anybody having asked you into this vast pattern that you uh, that uh, you never asked for um, a kind of um, social wallpaper and you're just a little uh, a little Philip in the social wallpaper 
and you look around yourself and see this and and you feel helpless and so you know um, you want to get out and and you want to shake other people up and let them know look we're we're stuck in this thing we can make our own patterns we can make our own uh, you know uh, culture we don't have to accept being force-fed this culture and but to do that you first have to shake them up and uh, sh uh, shock them out of their complacency at least theoretically these days, in, in your recent fiction, you really show a lot of empathy for suburban residents. Your recent novel, Crawlers, and In Darkness Waiting, both featured some really well-rounded, convincing, and sympathetic suburban characters. Tell us how you've gone from being installed to being inspired by the suburbs. Well, I live there. Um... It's where I was able to buy a house. I've got a family. Uh, but uh, it's possible to live any place um, in an awake sort of way um, and to dehypnotize yourself wherever you are. And um, uh, I look around me wherever I, I, I am and live, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and describe what I see. I, a lot of my stories... Uh, previously were about um, uh, inner city and urban scenes because that's where I lived. I lived in, in the Lower East Side in New York City for many years and I lived in San Francisco itself and uh, I was trying to evoke that and uh, now I live in the suburbs and I'm trying to see beyond the uh, surface of where I live in both cases and and because uh, there's always a, a life there that you you don't normally see and it's easy to just sort of skate by and not notice it um, if you go to the suburbs uh, on a typical day, um, you'll see a few people cutting their lawn, um, but for the most part, you don't see anyone. They're behind these uh, polarized windows, you know. Uh, they're in their backyard barbecuing with a, a few select friends, but it's not like the life of, of a European city or uh, a big city back east on the street where people are all thronging the sidewalks and interacting with each other. It's very curtained away. And so what's going on behind the curtains? What's, you know, what, what is the secret life um, in a suburb? And uh, in Crawlers, I try to bring that out, and then I, inf I fuse it w with um, w the allegorical material that, uh, that is taken from um, the fantastic, from science fiction imagery, but which really is just sort of playing out that secret life uh, symbolically. Talk a little bit, too, about your idea of the good apocalypse. I really was intrigued by that. You get a little bit of that in Silicon Embrace, and you have some plans for some positive apocalyptic novels, don't you? Yeah, I, I have one um, that I'd like to write, um, if I can intrigue a publisher or find the time to simply take the chance on it, called uh, The Other End. And uh, it's called that for a couple of reasons. We have these apocalyptic novels um, out that were bestsellers by um, Christian fundamentalists. Oh, yeah, the uh, Left Behind series. Yeah, and, uh, um, you know, I haven't read deeply into them. I've, I've, uh, I've read uh, through them as much as you can standing in the bookstore. But I got a sense of them, and I've read reviews, and I know, I know where they're coming from. And uh, it's a very literalistic interpretation of, of Revelation, which actually is 
kind of absurd since, you know, uh, biblical historians know that uh, the book of Revelations was actually about the Roman Empire uh, and was actually projecting only about 50 years from the time it was written. It was not intended to write, you know, about something happening 2,000 years later. Uh, it was about Rome. Uh, but then they, you know, because of the Rorschach inkblot you know, uh, phenomena. You can see what you want in a pattern. Uh, you know, people will superimpose their interpretation of of uh, that text on our own time and society um, in the service of of their um, uh, oppressive um, interpretation of religion. Uh, very narrow. Uh, you know, in my opinion, foolish because it's, uh, you know, of the creationist aspect, especially that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, but what if there was another kind of apocalypse? What if there was a good apocalypse rather than a big judgmental, cruel apocalypse that simply um, set the world, uh, you know, back uh, into kilter again uh, and, and, uh, and entity of some kind um, you know, con which we, we conveniently label God, uh, realizes that, that this planet has, you know, not been supervised properly. Uh, somebody was asleep at the switch, <laughs> you know, and he comes back and, oh my gosh, look at this stuff that's happened. The dark ages, actually, that wasn't intended. Somebody was supposed to prevent that. Um, you know, the inquisition, I'm sorry, I'm so embarrassed. Uh, you know, the Holocaust, oh, you know, and so, um, uh, this, this entity, um, you know, shakes up the world and transforms it back into more or less, you know, uh, what was originally intended, uh, which was a reasonable balance of, of, uh, uh, you know, the dark and light elements, um, and, um, and wakes people up so that they can, you know, get outside of their sort of mechanical psychological programming. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a very subjective what's going to happen in the book according to my particular, you know, um, political and social perspective. Uh, you know, it's going to be unapologetically my take on what what God should do if he comes back. <laughs> you know, so I get to play God in the book. And uh, it's going to be very much a contrast to those Left Behind books. It's the other end. You've worked a lot with uh, small press publishers. Mark Ziesing, who's a publisher and a bookseller, Cemetery Dance in Nightshade. And you've also published with big publishers. Uh, Crawlers is Del Rey. I'm wondering if you'd care to comment on the intersection of art in commerce, in both music and literature? Well, it's becoming more, more and more evident, the impact of commerce on art. Um, uh, you can see, if you look at, at, at what's been happening in publishing, the, the publishing companies are being bought by enormous multinational conglomerates. Oil companies, uh, you know, vast, big, soulless, mindless oil companies own... Uh, publishing companies that used to be independent and their uh, their values, their corporate values are kind of shifting the way publishing is, is carried out so that people uh, are far more uh, quick profit oriented than ever before. And publishing was always a business but there was a place in it for cultivating writers uh, and, 
and uh, that kind of like middle ground of cultivation um, is now an excluded middle and is, is becoming lost um, as they, they go more and more toward novelizations and um, formulaic material and uh, things that have to become bestsellers or else they're discarded. Uh, there's there's very little development of an author anymore, and you can find some, you know, you can find niche uh, literary activities happening in it, but it, it's it's increasingly narrow in my opinion, and the, and the established publishers do it less and less and less, and uh, I probably something of the same is is happening in music. Um, it's just it's music is is in such a ferment now because of. Um, uh, the internet and that whole phenomena and downloading it's it's hard to see where that's going to go uh, right now it's they they are recognizing that people have a built up resentment uh, because they were ripped off on the price of CDs they actually admitted in court recently um, that they that they had overcharged for CDs for example and and uh, you can get a 20 a 20 dollar check um, to you know, ameliorate your feeling of being ripped off a little bit, uh, if you go to this certain website um, that uh, all these uh, record companies contribute to, and uh, there's this just general sense of resentment against that whole industry, so that people feel, you know, it's okay to download stuff and and to pirate music, and and they know that, so they're going to have to uh, find a, I don't know. Um, Another way to uh, to sell music that uh, it seems fair to the public, and um, uh, and just recognize this kind of new economy uh, emerging, um, and find find another way to make a profit. And it's hard to imagine exactly how they're going to do it. They're tearing up their hair trying to figure it out. But it's like a a real clash, though, between uh, you know corporate culture and um, the, the democratic. Uh, instincts of the common person, you know. I'm not sure where it's going, but it's it's funny to watch them flail around right now. Your new novel, Crawlers, feeds quite a bit off the paranoia of not trusting the government. Well, uh, I'd, even, you know, the founding fathers didn't trust the government they were creating. They kept, uh, you know, writing in warnings about about not trusting the government, uh, you know, um, Hamilton and and uh, uh, Jefferson and people like that, and they they you know they warned people that some that this thing was liable to develop into a you know a behemoth that would get out of control. Uh, I think it's it's very American to mistrust the government, and. Uh, it's patriotic to mistrust the government, indeed, uh, because um, it, it exerts a pressure on the government to uh, constantly evolve. It's, you know, it's part of the pressure for the, for the evolution and, and, and uh, um, the kind of development of intelligence in a, in a government uh, when people are suspicious of it and, and keep prodding and pushing and demanding you know, that, that it expose itself. And uh, I, you know, I, I think it's... It's, it's healthy, actually, rather than paranoia. I, you know, uh, one of my sayings is that paranoia is a skill. You know, you have to, 
you have to be intelligent about paranoia. And you and uh, there are people with ridiculous conspiracy theories, uh, but some conspiracies are real. I mean, you know, and and um, people should be skeptical toward um, any system that controls their lives where that is uh, behind, uh, you know, shadows where they can't see what's going on. I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about being a working artist. Well, I'm a freelance guy, and and uh, it alternates between being um, heaven and hell. I mean, I can get up at uh, 10.30 in the morning if I want to, uh, and often do. And uh, I, uh, I can, you know, set my own hours, but uh, it also means that I'm... When you're when you're a real freelance artist, uh, you know the cash flow is uneven. Uh, you're constantly hustling for a new gig, and I've done very well. But um, uh, it's it it does lack that kind of you know fundamental solidity of a of a day job. Uh, <laughs> so it it can be hard. Um, it, so it's both things, you know. It's 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 constant anxiety, and and it's like sort of like being a fisherman. You know, you have to constantly keep lines in the water. In some years, the catch isn't good, but uh, there's nobody else around you, you know, telling you uh, what to do all day. You're out there at, at sea, and there's a certain freedom. Could you tell us um, what's coming up, both in uh, books and in film, since you're writing for film and TV? Well, uh, I'm uh, working on a book called Jesus the Gnostic, which is uh, about... Uh, this, it's not a humorous book. You're, you're laughing here. It's, it's a serious book, but it's, it's about... Uh, it's a novel uh, about Jesus um, as a Gnostic, because uh, I believe he was a Gnostic, and, and the Gospel of Thomas probably represents his real teaching, a very radical sort of... Um, teaching too and very mystical and uh, it's sort of Jesus being influenced by Buddhists because there were Buddhists around at the time and I think he may have run into them uh, and by the Essenes and and creating what became Gnosticism of which there's just a little bit in the Bible um, and there's and he's you know there's no resurrection in it uh, one you know the Gnostics held that he um, was uh, crucified but survived just didn't die and they and um, that there was a deception and that he was taken down before he was dead and survived and and basically moved out of the area and uh, that's basically what I'm going to uh, uh, what I'm going to say uh, in a novelistic form uh, and I'm writing a I'm writing spec screenplays um, that one is called uh, uh, Jump Out and it's uh, based on my short story War and Peace. Uh, from Black Butterflies, my story collection, Black Butterflies. It's a suspense piece. We've been speaking with John Shirley. His latest novel is Crawlers. Thanks, John. It was great. <laughs>